I'm just going to share a message that's been just on my heart. I believe you should share what God's speaking to you about and not try and dive into something else too quickly when he's taking you through something in your life. And this is the message of where, where God is speaking to me right now. And uh, it's called God is in control. God is in control. Um, some of you might have heard of this uh, book by John Ortberg. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. It's a catchy title. And uh, it's been a very popular bestseller book. And uh, just as we open in a minute, I'm just going to read a wee excerpt from it. And uh, you can wonder what this picture is about, but all will become clear in a wee minute. Let's open in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come to your word. And Lord, we acknowledge that it is your word. And Lord, I pray today that your voice would be heard in this place and no other voice. Lord, give me the words as I speak today, Lord. We all want to hear from you. We're trusting in you today to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is from the book here. Some years ago, my wife arranged for us to ride in a hot air balloon as a birthday gift. We went to the field where the balloons ascended and got into a little basket with one other couple. We introduced ourselves and swapped vocational information. Then our pilot began the ascent. The day had just dawned clear, crisp, cloudless. We could see the entire Canajo Valley from craggy canyons to the Pacific Ocean. It was scenic, inspiring and majestic. But also but I also experienced one emotion I had not anticipated. Want to guess? Fear. I had always thought those baskets went about chest high, but this one only came up to our knees. One good lurch would be enough to throw someone over the side. He wasn't thinking anything there, he was in with his wife. Um, So I held on with grim determination and white knuckles. I looked over at my wife, who does not care for heights at all, and relaxed a bit, knowing there was someone else in the basket more tense than I was. I could tell because she would not move at all. During part of her flight, there was a horse ranch on the ground directly behind her. I pointed it out because she loves horses, and without turning around or even pivoting her head, she simply rolled her eyes as far as she could get them back and said, Yes, it's beautiful. About this time, I decided I'd try to get to know the kid who was flying this balloon. I realised that I could try to psych myself up into believing it would be fine, but the truth was we had placed our life and destinies in the hands of the pilot. Everything depended on his character and competence. I asked him what he did for a living and how he got started flying hot air balloons. I was hoping for his former job to be one full of responsibilities, A neurosurgeon, perhaps. An astronaut who missed going up into space. I knew we were in trouble when his response to me began, Dude, it's like this. He did not even have a job. He mostly surfed. He said that the reason he got started flying hot air balloons was that he had been driving around in his pickup when he'd had too much to drink. He crashed the truck and badly injured his brother. His brother still couldn't get around so well. So watching hot air balloons gave him something to do. By the way, he added, if things get a little choppy on the way down, don't be surprised. I've never flown this particular balloon before, and I'm not sure how it's going to handle the descent. (laughs) 
my wife looked over at me and said, you mean to tell me that we are a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who started flying hot air balloons because he got drunk, crashed the pickup, injured his brother and has never been in this one before and doesn't know how to bring it down? Then the wife of the other couple looked at me and spoke the words, the only words either of them were to utter throughout the entire flight. You're a pastor, do something religious. So I took an offering. (laughs) That's religious enough, isn't it? (laughs) The great question at the moment like this is, a moment like that is, can I trust the pilot? I could try telling myself that everything would turn out okay. Facing the flight with a positive, positive attitude would certainly make it a more pleasant journey. But the journey would be over soon. And the real issue concerned the dude who was flying this thing. Where his character and competence such that I could confidently place my destiny in his hand? Or was it time to do something religious? It's good, isn't it? And you know, when I picked up this book and was really enthusiastic about reading it, I read it at the wrong moment. It's dangerous to open a book for the first time when you don't exactly know what the first page is going to say in, at that particular moment. I was on a plane, ready to take off. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you, I was on my way to Turkey. And I remember, because there's the postcard of the beautiful hotel we stayed at there, and it's in the book. And you know, I'll be honest, I never completed the book because it terrified me. I was sitting on, reading this thing about the pilot. Your life been in the hands of the pilot. As I was about to take off. So there's the question, can I trust the pilot? A reading today is from Matthew chapter 8, if you want to turn to it. Uh, There are church Bibles there if you like a Bible. I don't have the page number, but if you turn to Matthew chapter 8, the verses will also be up on the screen. Verses 23 to 27. I'll be reading from the New International Version from all the scriptures today, but you should be able to find that it matches up fairly well. Jesus calms the storm. Then he got into the boat, that's Jesus, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's quite a dramatic account in that storyline. You can read through it and uh, having not been there at the time, you could quickly glance over that passage and just read it like a story. But imagine being there. It must have been quite terrifying, eh? Much like the scenario in the hot air balloon, you're not entirely sure whether you're going to come back down again. Um, Here they are on a, no doubt, fairly small boat, on incredibly furious waves. And the disciples are absolutely terrified. You can see that there, can't you? You can see they're absolutely terrified. But my first point from this passage today is God is in control. God is in control. You know the psalmist uh, talks about in Psalm 89, you don't need to turn to it, the scriptures will come up here. In Psalm 89 verses 8 and 9, 
it speaks about the mighty power of God to still the sea. This is a sign of the great power of Almighty God. It says this, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. In the Old Testament, God alone is the one who causes storms and calms them. Here in Matthew chapter 8, 23-27, Jesus is shown to have that exact same power over nature. And the disciples came to understand that even the winds and the seas obey Jesus. This is quite significant, bearing in mind uh, disciples in those days, folks knew their Old Testament. And they knew that things like this only happened when God did them. You know, nobody goes about stilling the seas, do they? And there in the other, there's other scriptures as well in the Old Testament that talk about that. But in that there it says, Oh Lord, there's none like you. When the waves mount up, you still them. And here Jesus demonstrates this same power. This dramatic incident is also recorded in Mark's Gospel. And we're going to take a look at that just for clarity. On the account in Mark's Gospel, it's up on the screen as well. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 47, 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's quite, quite funny in some ways when you read through this passage, you know, and it's, it's got a little bit of detail in Mark there that wasn't in Matthew. Did you notice it? When the boat was nearly swamped in the storm, Jesus was sleeping on a cushion. And uh, you can just imagine, quite comfortable, quite comfortable, totally at peace and asleep there. In Mark's account, the disciples woke Jesus as he was sleeping on a cushion in the stern of the boat and asked him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Then after that, Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still, almost talking to them like a, like a person. Peace, be still. That word quiet could be also peace. Be still. Then when all was calm, he turned round to his disciples and asked why they were so afraid. You'll notice that between the two accounts in Matthew and, and, and Mark, there are slight differences. Uh, in the event, I suppose if two people tell the story, it'll always come out slightly differently. And it's interesting the way in the Gospels they sometimes recount the same story, but from slightly different angles and different personalities. One commentator says this about the, the, two, the two accounts. While both narratives are fragmentary, each retains truthful echoes of what was said and done by Jesus and his disciples in a crisis that was as dangerous as it was confusing. Though some disciples showed more faith than others, as is shown by the different versions of their cries, none of them were excluded from Jesus' rebuke for not understanding that if he was in the boat with them, all must be well. 
And he may have spoken, the disciples rebuked just before and after he rebuked the winds and the waves. You'll notice the account, one of them says he, he, he rebuked them before he stilled the, the waves, and the other one said afterwards. Um, but regardless of the order, uh, the, the, the details are, the, are, are correct. And I suppose if you put yourself in one of the disciples' shoes, wouldn't we have all been terrified? And I suppose we'd have all had different reactions. Some of us would have been the ones shouting, Lord, save us. And some of us would have been saying, a wee bit more reserved, you know. Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? <laughs> it's two different approaches, two different personalities and two ways of reacting. But both reveal uh, a lack of faith. But in this situation, Jesus power reveals his identity in Matthew 8 27 it says the men were amazed and asked what kind of man is this even the winds and the waves obey him if the disciples thought the boat might sink with Jesus aboard it was because they did not understand Jesus identity his power over the sea however forces them to think about this question Jesus is the son of God fully God and fully man and he has the authority to command nature even the winds and the waves obey him. It's certainly the case here that um, there's a problem understanding his identity. Because if they truly understood Jesus' power and authority, they wouldn't have been quite so scared. Don't you agree? In fact, they must have felt pretty silly afterwards when he just stood up and calmed the whole situation down like that. Okay, so just a couple of points to take out to expand uh, on this, this part that God is in control. First of all, observe the Master's peace. Jesus has peace in this situation. The commentator F.B. Meyer says, Storms must sweep across all of our lives. The Master's sleep indicates peace and security of his nature. Our Lord was sure that the Father was with him. Often in these days, the ability to sleep uh, during times of trouble was regarded as a sign of faith in God. You know, it was a very spiritual, God-focused society. And uh, if you were able to sleep when mayhem was going on in your life, it was attributed to be, you must be trusting in God if you can do that. So it's another sign that Jesus was at peace in the midst of the storm. But then in contrast to that, we see the disciples fear, don't they? Contrast starkly. And Jesus says they're of little faith. Okay. Let's move on to the second point. You know, so, sometimes uh, we wonder why things happen, don't we? We wonder why storms come in life, why difficulties come. I'm sure the disciples were thinking that in the boat there. They just set off for a nice calm wee journey across to the other side. And it becomes quite a bit of difficulty they hadn't expected. But there's a great scripture in Romans 8, uh, 28. And it says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Just to expand on that, first of all it says, in all things in life. All things. F.B. Meyer says, Take heart from Romans 8.28. All things are working. They are working together like the cogs of two wheels revolving in different directions. They are working together for good. Have you ever had two things or things in your life that just don't make sense? That's a wee illustration. There are two cogs working in opposite direction but connected in together and ultimately they're working for a greater good. 
Sometimes we just can't figure out why things have happened. Maybe we've lost a loved one, lost our job, had a relationship breakdown. We can take heart through, through this scripture that in all things, God is working for the good. Now, when it says for the good, what does that mean? Let's just expand on that. For the, it says for the good of those who love him. For the good of those who love him. A basis for the believer's confident expectation of the future is God's constant working in all things for the good of those who love him. Nothing that can touch us lies outside the scope of the Father's care. Indeed, there is cause for joy and a rock-solid foundation for hope. But we need to define the good that God is working to produce for us in his terms and not ours. God knows that our greatest good is to know him and to enjoy his presence forever. He may then, in pursuit of this final good, allow difficulties such as poverty, grief and ill health to afflict us. Wherever the difficulty, our loving Father is at work to make us stronger Christians. The only condition is love on our part. So the good there, that was an extract from a commentary there just to help us understand. It's an important point because sometimes we think that everything's going to be easy and that good means everything's going to be good. And some people teach that but it's wrong teaching. The good that God's working to produce in our life is to be more like him and to make us stronger Christians through our experiences. And it also mentions there that there is a condition on our part that's for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We have a responsibility to love God. Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of Billy Graham, says this sometimes we think that our good is our health and wealth and prosperity and we think God you haven't kept your promise because all things are not good in my life that's not what it means for you and me the ultimate good is that we be conformed to the image of Christ that means when I am in his will and I am am called according to his purpose everything that comes into my life He allows for the purpose of conforming me to the image of Christ. Our suffering isn't wasted. God will use it for his own glory to conform us to his image and to reveal himself to the world around us. Isn't that a great encouragement? You know, sometimes you go through difficulty and suffering and it just seems like the opposite of God is in control. It seems like out of control. Out of control. And you think, how can this out of control life that's caused me pain and difficulty and all this hurt. How can it be for good? The word of God says, God works all things together for good. Thirdly here, um, I can read from First Peter, um, verse 6 to 7. It says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that you, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though defined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here we have an unlikely response to trials. This is trusting God in the trials. Trusting God in the trials. 
First of all, rejoicing in the face of difficulties. One commentator says this, The blessings from God can lead to rejoicing in the face of difficulties. The purpose of earthly trials is to sift out what is genuine in our faith. This in turn will bring praise, glory and honour both to Jesus and the person who has suffered on the day when Jesus is revealed. Rejoicing in the face of difficulties. Again, Anne Graham Lotz um, says in her book here, Peter at the end of his life maintained the joy in knowing Jesus and making him known because he kept his focus on God's grace and in God's gift and in God's glory. He tells us in verses 67, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. This thrill stayed with Peter all of his life. Peter is saying, The glory of God can be revealed in my life and other people can look at me and see Jesus. Do you know that when this takes place most dramatically is when we suffer grief and have all sorts of trials? You know, that's when our faith shines through. Faith shines through. I'm just going to read another excerpt. Apologies for the readings. It's a wee bit different today. But I'm just going to read some accounts here. Again by Anne Graham Watts. of years ago I went to see the crown jewels at the Tower of London they are absolutely spectacular diamonds as big as golf balls and emeralds as big as goose eggs and they sparkle like they are on fire they are laid in black velvet and the jewels are spectacular and it shows off the glory of the jewels the trials and sufferings and pressures in our lives are the black velvet And God lets them come into our lives so that other people can look at us and see the contrast of the glory of the character of Jesus in us against the backdrop of our sufferings. If you have all the money you want in the bank and your hair is always perfect and your body is always in good shape, your children always behave, your health is always in perfect order, your business is growing wonderfully and you're kind and thoughtful and you tell people about Jesus, other people are going to shrug. If I had a life like that, I could be nice too. (laughs) But when your spouse has walked out on you, you've been diagnosed with a disease and things are going wrong and everything is crashing in and then you're still kind and you have peace in your heart and there's joy in your face, people sit up and take notice because they know that's not natural. That's supernatural. They can see the glory of God in your life. Peter says rejoice when you have trials because the trials are the black velvet. They come so that your faith would shine through. Your faith would be proved genuine. It's a nice imagery, isn't it? The sufferings of life are like the backdrop of black velvet that shows up all the more brightly. The faith that shines through and the genuineness of a Christian experience loving Jesus in the midst of the pain and the trials and the difficulties. Wonderful. So we have rejoicing in the face of our difficulties, our faith shining through. Thirdly, trust completely. 
trust completely. Jesus' main rebuke here for his disciples was actually their lack of trust in him. We must learn to trust God completely. Even if our obedience to him leads us into storms. Whether persecution or anything else. Did you notice in the, in the story there? I didn't quite catch this, but as I, as I studied it, it came out in my study. It wasn't actually the disciples that had decided to go across to the other side. Did you notice that? It was Jesus. Both accounts marked it. The first one said in Matthew that they followed Jesus. He went first. The second one um, in Mark, I'll just pull it up so I get it right. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Jesus told them to go. Jesus told them to go. And this was going to happen. Does it not seem like a contradiction there? No. They were in God's will. They were in the boat with Jesus. And mayhem broke loose. Right in the midst of the water. But they were in God's will. You know, sometimes we think that because things go wrong in our lives, you know, some people are doing really well and we're not, and everything's going wrong, we think that we're out of God's will or we've disobeyed Him or we've done a wrong move, made a wrong move. Not true. Not always true. Sometimes it's true. But not always true. You can take a step out for God and mayhem takes place, and often it does. Take a step out of that boat and... uh, all of a sudden your face getting tested left, right and centre. But find that encouraging. That the storms in life don't mean God isn't with you. And that God hasn't called you to be where he's got you. You know, we could be in work and it's really difficult. It doesn't mean God's not called you to be there. That's where he has you just now. And he's asking you to trust him completely while you're there. And he'll lead you forward in the next steps. If there are next steps, onward. And then in the home, in the family, we have difficulties and problems, financial issues. We're not where we want to be and we think, what have we done wrong? We need to trust him completely. Know that God's in control. Hand over it to him. And just when things don't go as planned, you know, sometimes we've got our own plans. Proverbs says, many are the plans in the man's heart, but it's the Lord that directs his steps. And I know in my own life, I've had particular plans. But you know they've not worked out because they're not God's plans. I know certain things that God told me to do. He said go to Moody'sburn. He said move into Moody'sburn. He said start a church and the rest of those things. But then my mind and heart goes off in a lot of different directions and we make our own plans, don't we? But God's calling us to trust His plans. But not doubt the steps that we've taken in faith already. So if He says go, go. If He says stay, stay. Even if the waves are roaring all around us and it doesn't make sense. So just to recap here, we see firstly that God is in control in the Christian's life, the Christian that's trusting in him. God is in control. Secondly, for the Christian, all things work together for good. For those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And thirdly, our response, we must trust God in the trials. If you're not a Christian, you don't have these promises that we've just listed there. These are promises for Christians. We need to believe first in Jesus to be saved. John 3.16 is a well-known verse. 
but it captures the gospel perfectly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We need to believe in Jesus. I was saying the ABC to the children and it applies to all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to believe in Jesus and we need to confess. Thirdly, we need to repent. That's what that word repent means, confess. Turn around, go in the opposite direction, acknowledge that we're wrong. And the good news is that salvation is available for all. Second Peter 3.9, it's on the screen there. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I love that verse. It's great if you're praying for somebody in your family that's not a Christian. Take a hold of that verse. Pray that verse and say, God, your word says you do not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Also, if you're not a Christian, listen to the verse. He's patient with you. He doesn't want you to perish. You know, there's a heaven and a hell and they're both very real places. We don't hear too much about it nowadays because the world will tell you you can live how you like and it doesn't make any difference and you can believe what you like and it doesn't make any difference. But the word of God is truth. And it says there are two choices. There are two places you could be, either heaven and hell. And the only way to heaven is through our Lord Jesus Christ, through ABC, all of sin, believe in Jesus. Confess your sins. Just to close, um, there's a famous hymn called It Is Well With My Soul and it was written by Horatio Gates Spafford. Um, He was from New York. He was a prominent uh, American lawyer best known for penning the the hymn It Is Well With My Soul. Following a, a family tragedy in which four of his daughters died, On October 8th, 1871, the great Chicago fire swept through the city. Horatio was a prominent lawyer in Chicago and had invested heavily in the city's real estate and the fire destroyed almost everything he owned. Two years later, in 1873, Spafford decided his family should take a holiday somewhere in Europe and he chose England knowing that his friend D.L. Moody would be preaching there in the fall. Delayed because of busyness, he sent ahead of him his family, his wife and their four children, daughters Anna, Annie, Margaret Lee and Elizabeth and Tanetta. On November 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on the steamship Ville du Havre, their ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel and 226 people lost their lives, including all four of Spafford's daughters. Anna Spafford, his wife, survived the tragedy. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to Spafford beginning, Saved Alone. Spafford then sailed to England, going over the location of his daughter's deaths. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, It is well with my soul was written on this journey. This is what he wrote, verse 1. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, 
it is well. It is well with my soul. Father God, we thank you for your word for us today. We know it's not an easy word to listen to because it reminds us of some of those difficulties we we have in life. But Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus and that he walked this earth fully God and fully man and that he was in the boat and he experienced what it was like to face storms in a literal sense and he knew what it was to face storms in life. But I thank you for his perfect example of peace in the midst of the storm. I thank you for your word to us today. That we can trust you. That if we believe in you, you're in control. And Father God, I just pray if there's anything in our own lives and our own experiences is troubling us today, that you would speak the words peace, be still into our lives and help us to see that just like the diamond with the black velvet behind it the suffering just all the more shows clearly the glory of Christ and that our faith shines through Father God we thank you for this encouragement today that we know you are the pilot of our life Father God I just pray for us Christians here that we would trust you more that we would acknowledge you more that those difficulties and sufferings that we've had that we would rest them you say, you said in your word you know, come to me all those who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest so we come to you today Lord and you know our hurts and you know our pains and I just pray Lord in Jesus name you bring healing to us bring healing to us Lord with the words peace be still and that we can trust you for the way ahead we can trust you because you say you have good plans for us. And Father, I pray for those that don't know you as Saviour today. I just pray, Lord, you challenge them with the seriousness of this issue that you are real and that this life has a purpose and we must be saved. Father God, I just pray if there's any here that don't know you as Saviour that we pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming to this earth. I believe you're truly God. I thank you that you suffered even death on the cross to stand in my place. And Father, I'm I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong and I ask you to forgive me for those things and I turn from those things and I accept you into my heart and life and I declare you Lord of my life. Father God, I thank you that you promised that when we believe in you, we confess with our mouth that you are Lord, that we are saved. It's a promise. We don't need to worry about it. But I just pray, Lord, you would just minister to each one here and that each one of us would make a commitment to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.